thank you to all of you who are joining us here today. Uh, it's uh, wonderful of Trillium to host uh, these wormhole sessions. They are the producers of this. Trillium, of course, is the organization that nine years ago now, wow, founded and currently runs the NASA Frontier Development Lab in FDL Europe with their industry partners, Google Cloud, NVIDIA, Intel, and many others. Uh, go to Trillium.tech if you want to learn more about them. Uh, we're grateful that uh, that they're hosting uh, these sessions for us. And today, today is kind of special. Look at him smile there. Uh, today, we're hosting very good friend, Dr. Andrew Andy Aldrin. Uh, Andy is so many things. Uh, he is the program coordinator for the Master of Space Pro Operations Program at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Uh, he's also president of the Aldrin Family Foundation. Uh, as I mentioned, we're, after we do this interview, we will do some Q&A at the end. We'll ask you to put those into chat. So please uh, put those uh, put those into chat, your questions, and Catherine's going to help us moderate those. Uh, this is special for so many reasons. Just first of all, because he's Andy Aldrin, and uh, he's uh, he's quite a character. Uh, I should say Andy and I have been good friends for many years now, and uh, we've even done interviews before. So this isn't our first rodeo, as we say here in the U.S. Uh, and he's, he's not only uh, fascinating, but he's fun. And, uh, and I think you're all going to enjoy our time here today. So we're going to sort of jump right into it um, and sort of get off the table. The very first big question, the big thing here is, uh, Andy, uh, we are almost exactly the same age uh, and uh, have had very, in some ways, some very similar life experiences, uh, certainly uh, the same timeline, especially with regards to space. However, you were sort of smack dab in the middle of it. Uh, if you haven't figured it out yet, folks, uh, Andy's father is a famed astronaut, Buzz Aldrin. And Andy, you grew up right in the dawn of the space age. Uh, uh, that had to be a thing. Share a little bit about, just a little bit about, because we want to get into all the other good stuff, what that journey was like for you. Uh, and why don't you take us up to, you know, growing up into that and how you ended up becoming a cold warrior. <laughs> <laughs> because you did. I, well, yeah, I did. I did. You I did. did. So, um, yeah. So the the thing that's maybe most interesting is, is growing up with a, a dad that went to the moon was normal for me because that's what you did where I lived, where I lived was at the end of a street, a cul-de-sac. And so we had one of these lots that's shaped like a pie. There are five houses behind us. Three of them were astronauts. I mean, you couldn't, I'll get in trouble for this one, Maureen will say, <laughs> you couldn't swing a dead cat at my elementary school without hitting an astronaut's kid. I mean, they were all over the place. So it was just kind of normal. I mean, Alan Bean lived directly behind us and he flew on the mission after my dad. So I kind of grew up, I mean, not really thinking that space was normal, but that's just what we did. And every night over dinner, dad talked about space because any of those, who, those of you who know him know that that's what he did. And so, of course, I wanted, I won't say nothing to do with space, but I became fascinated by the Soviet Union. And so um, 
my first career was as a Sovietologist. I mean, I actually studied things about the Soviet space program. This is a Soviet Union, right? A lot of you who are out there probably weren't alive when the Soviet Union went away. Um, I was, and it wasn't a great thing for, for my career. That's, I guess, my cold warrior days. I was at the Rand Corporation and before that at the Institute for Defense Analysis. But the most interesting thing about that phase of my life was I wrote my dissertation on how the Soviet Union beat the United States into space because I was fascinated. How did a country that we thought was so backwards beat us into space? And the interesting thing about it was they beat us into space by being entrepreneurial, which isn't kind of where you would expect entrepreneurship in the Soviet Union. But one of the things I've learned is it happens everywhere. But what happens, you had a group of rocket scientists who who wanted to go into space and they convinced uh, Stalin that initially they could build anti-aircraft missiles and they could build ballistic missiles. And Stalin didn't care anything about space. Khrushchev didn't care anything about space. In fact, on the day that Korolev launched Sputnik, it was like 10 o'clock at night, he calls up Khrushchev and says, great news for you. Uh, we launched a satellite into space. First time that's ever happened. And Khrushchev said, why are you bugging me? Um, it's 10 o'clock at night. And so knowing Khrushchev, he was busy with other things, but um, Khrushchev got it, right? And then, you know, you sort of know the story of Soviet propaganda. And so that was cool. And there were a lot of interesting things about understanding sort of what really happened in the Soviet space system. And that's maybe where I kind of picked up a bit of my contrarian instinct. But then the Soviet Union had the bad manners, I think, to die and go away. And that was not good for my career. And so I ended up on, I won't say by accident, I had been working with aerospace companies and I got brought in um, to TRW initially, actually it was Rocketdyne first, then TRW and then Boeing. And here you've got a recovering Sovietologist who ends up uh, running business development strategy and advanced programs for Boeing's human spaceflight and NASA business, and then for their launch business. And then I went on to ULA. And then I went to, then I ran um, Moon Expresses, which is where I met Jonathan. And in spite of the fact that we were both associated with Moon Express, we still remain great friends. And um, that was quite an experience. So yeah, then I tried retiring and ended up in academia, starting an institute at Florida Tech uh, for my dad, the Aldrin Space Institute. And uh, now I'm at Embry-Riddle. So that's the 35 second version of my career. And you kind of went fast over a lot of things and there were a lot of things in there. You talked about being at Boeing and being at United Launch Alliance. And we'll come back to your contrarian instinct that you self-labeled as having here in a moment. But uh, what kind of things did you do at those companies? And, uh, you know, I'm sure most people know what ULA is, but I don't know if everyone here does. And, yeah. and what's, you know, they know Boeing when they think of 737 Max is being grounded, right? But tell us a little bit about your time there. So, um, yeah, at Boeing, it was it was an interesting and fascinating time because this was what I call the second wave of commercialization. It was right around 2000. And, you know, we were going to commercialize the space station. I think the first project I worked on was building a commercial module or proposing a commercial module for the space station. And... Um, you know, some of the things that we talked about then are very, very similar to um, what we're talking about today. And so I, I was really part of the organization that 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 launched Boeing's 
bid to to go back to the moon. And, and this goes back to 2003. Remember, that was the first time we were going to go back to the moon. And, and, and to be honest with you, there was a lot of sensible things about the way we were trying to do it in 2003. But here we are, right, in 2023. Um, and then... Um, I got brought into uh, to run business development and Boeing's launch business because at the time, this we're talking about 2004, 2005. Uh, hello, hello, was that? Oh, go ahead. I, somebody okay. just did was on was muted. 2000, 2004, 2005, and they brought me in to run business development for the launch business because going back to the moon was all going to be about launches and delta four heavies and all that kind of great stuff and in space tugs and uh and all of that kind of um kind of collapsed if you will because nasa decided they're going to be in the launch business and so then um then ula happened and so ula was an interesting thing because it was um it was an interesting marriage of it ostensibly equals, but there are no equals in it. And um, and of course, that's United Launch Alliance. Right, which was a merger of Boeing and, and Lockheed's launch business because there were a lot of reasons that, that were behind it. But um, it we sort of inherited a, a monopoly of the launch business. And that was that was an interesting period of time for um, for those of you that are familiar with the innovators dilemma, Clayton Christensen, we were kind of living the innovators dilemma because at ULA, we were um, we were the incumbent and we were doing exactly, exactly what our customer wanted. Our, wanted our, our customer wanted complete and total reliability over anything and they were willing to pay for it. Because if you think about it, if you've got a customer who's got a billion dollar satellite, at spending another $10 million or $20 million on a launch to do additional mission assurance is a good deal for them. And so they wrote contracts so that we would stress mission assurance. Our bonus structure stressed mission assurance. We were doing exactly what our customer wanted. We just became, as the innovators dilemma discusses, we became, we provided, if you will, too much quality, too much reliability, and too much cost. And that created the opportunity for SpaceX to come in. And so the insurgent came in and now you look at, at ULA and the insurgent has taken away most of the market. I mean, I think uh, I think Tori Bruno is doing an exceptional job of trying to turn ULA around and it will get really interesting depending on who buys ULA. It'll get really interesting from there. But the lesson of the whole thing with ULA is that um, there are some really good theories in management theory. There's also a lot of junk. But if you think about stuff that really gives you a framework to understand what's happening, that's really useful. And I really think the Clayton Christensen and the Innovators Dilemma um, is a useful framework to understand the dynamic that's happening right now um, in the space industry. And I know at least Martina out there knows exactly what I'm talking about because she had to write papers on this stuff. And you know that yes, lays that lays a, a groundwork, uh, a unique life journey for some of the things you're involved with today. Uh, first of all, I, I wonder how many people have ever heard the phrase Sovietology before, <laughs> Sovietologist. But hey, that was a thing for uh, a long time. Um, and so you've had this experience with 
like we said at the beginning, the dawn of it all with your father and even before the moon, him on his Gemini, uh, you know, mission. Uh, So you've been a part of it. It's been ingrained into you. You end up uh, doing your work on the Soviet Union and the space program. You end up at two of the largest military and aviation industrial complex companies, Lockheed and Boeing and their launch business. Uh, doing the Aldrin Institute at Florida Tech. And now I absolutely love what you're doing at Embry-Riddle University. Um, Tell us a little bit about the graduate program that you're leading there. You have a thousand students currently in this program. Uh, It's wonderful. And and tell us the nickname they have for you and, and why they have that nickname for you. you no, know, we'll start, we'll start with that. And I, I will admit that I probably encourage them the cosmic curmudgeon. Yeah. Um, because um, what I do is teach. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an advocate. I'm not a cheerleader. I'm not an entrepreneur. Well, I am an academic entrepreneur. I'm working on like my third degree program now, but what I, what I love to do is teach what, is really going on. I mean, the the question we are constantly asking is, does this stuff make sense? And in order to understand what it may, whether it makes sense, you really have to understand what the critical questions are. So that's just kind of a, uh, if you will, an intellectual foundation with everything that we do. So the program itself, um, we it's it's online, which is one of the reasons we're able to attract so many students. It's a graduate program. It's a it's a master's degree um, with the way I think of it. Um, it's it's truly interdisciplinary in the sense that it's probably about 25 percent technology and, and a little bit of engineering. It's 25 percent uh, policy and a little bit of law. It's 25 percent management and it's 25 percent real economics because we really do. We start from the very economic foundations of every industry we look at. And it's organized mostly along the lines of what I call industry verticals. So we'll look at launch industry and you will, uh, in a lot of cases, you you come up with a business concept and we'll talk about um, the basic markets that are there. We'll talk about um, what the broader environment that you live in. We talk about how you make money. Then you can start talking about technology and what your system is, but not until you've figured out sort of the fundamental economics of it. So that's kind of, you know, in a nutshell, the basic theory of it, as I said, um, we've got in, in two years, I guess we're now in our, into our third year. So uh, we've got a thousand students attending classes. I think if you look at the actual numbers that are enrolled full time in the entire master's program, the number is lower. Maybe it's three, 350, 400 right now. But it's it's been really um, successful and the most important thing from my perspective is, don't take this the wrong way, Martina, but the quality of the students and the papers that they're writing is the best I've ever seen in my life. And it's because in a lot of ways, when you're online, you got to work on something every week. You can't just give a few lectures and say, all right, you guys turn in a paper at the end of it all. You're working on your, your research projects. So it works. It works really well. And um, and it's accessible. So it's um, I'm and and I'm just I'm super excited about working with people at Embry Riddle. I think, you know, in a way, um, 
it's a little bit of innovators dilemma that if you will, traditional education, nothing against Stanford and MIT, um, are the incumbents and we are very much the insurgents and we're doing things differently. I think we, over time are gonna do, I think you can do more online by bringing in things like these kinds of interviews than you can um, in a traditional um, environment. So yeah, I'm super excited about what it is we're doing. And um, you know, this is, I, I, I really hope this is my last job. And it's it's uh, one of the leading aeronautic universities in the world, uh, if not the leading aeronautics university in the world that's been around for some time in a field that's compared to other academic institutions, folk, you know, uh, very new uh, relative to uh, to many other things. Uh, tell us a little, if you would, about uh, your students a little bit and the kinds yeah. of backgrounds some of them have, the goals that they have. And I imagine they're entrepreneurs and engineers and others. Tell us, tell us about them. We, it, it truly is diverse. So if you just, I've looked at the demographics and the demographics look a lot like America. And so, I mean, there are uh, a few groups that are a little underrepresented. We, we don't have a lot of indigenous, but um, other than that, it's pretty good for a technical program. We are very close to 50-50 between men and women, which is great. I mean, in typical engineering programs, it's maybe 40% women. I mean, it's getting better. But so I think, you know, one of the reasons is First of all, we can get out to communities and where people are that couldn't, you know, necessarily afford to go to a residential graduate program, or even, you know, a, a residential program in the town where they're working. Um, and it's it's something where I think, you know, one of the things that we hear from women in particular is they go into engineering programs and they feel a little bit intimidated um, because engineers, particularly male engineers, are male engineers. And and sometimes that can be a less than inviting environment. And and we don't they 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 don't feel that in this kind of a program. So I think that's another one of the reasons why um I, I'm excited about the potential for online um education. If you look at the other things, the sort of diversity of careers so it we do have we we've got a smattering of students that are coming directly out of undergraduate. Uh, I don't have the numbers. My guess is it's probably ten percent are, are traditional students coming from undergrad engineering into space. Um, we have uh, a fair number of students, maybe twenty five percent, who are either active military or retired military. Um, I had a couple of sub captains so far which was amazing and they're great students and they they just wanted to look at transitioning into space. One of them I think was just really interested in just the topic because I think he was he was headed toward retirement. Anyway, we have um, a lot of students that are coming from um, other industries, uh, from aviation pilots. We've got people that are working on aircraft and then we've got probably, I'd say, 25% of our students, maybe more, are, are in aerospace companies right now, in space companies right now, looking to, to grow in their careers. And, and in, in all of these cases, what I think we're doing 
is by providing them real knowledge of the whole ecosystem, allowing them um, to understand space and make a transition from being um, focused on a small job to a higher level position that, that enables them to do more, to become a leader, to become an executive, to become a manager. Um, one brief digression. So I was talking with, when, when we set the program up, we went out to industry and talked to people all over the place. And um, one of the things that they said is, look, we've got, we do a great job training engineers. And what we don't do is train people to be leaders, to understand why decisions are made. And, and uh, one guy whose name I won't publicly say, but he said, look, I got, I got 3,000 people working for me, 2,500 of them are engineers, and I make a lot of bad engineering decisions. Good decisions, but bad engineering decisions. And if you know an engineer, nothing is more difficult for them to handle than a bad engineering decision. And he said, I need my managers and everybody in the company to understand why we're making these decisions so we're all on the same page. And that thinking was sort of reiterated from lots and lots of people. And I think, you know, particularly if you're in an entrepreneurial company, you do a lot of stuff that you that has to do with keeping the business alive and not necessarily the best engineering. So that's what we're doing. We've, um, yeah. Yeah. What, super excited. So uh, you talked about people being able to uh, lead and uh, lead at that higher level um, within organizations. And speaking of just higher levels, um, what do you believe we need to really be thinking about at that highest level with regards to things like global collaboration? If we're truly going to have humans in space, if we're truly going to see space as an economic destination, um, clearly we're going to have to understand what that means, the business of space. How much does that differ from the business on earth? And what do we have to focus on uh, immediately, uh, globally, in order to move ahead? Because as you have witnessed in your life, and even before 2003, going back in the 70s, we were before it got shut down, thinking that it was going to go back and it was going to keep happening. It just didn't. What do we need to do to make sure we don't stall again with regards to this? Hmm. Well, so um, one way of thinking, and I, somebody is going to help me out with this quote, but there's a quote that I can't attribute it to someone because I've forgotten who it was and I keep looking. Maybe it's high, I don't know, that we... Um, Humanity, because of the Cold War, created an artificial salient in space because of the Cold War, because we were we were going out there because we had to. We will be successful in space. We will have sustainable presence in space when we fill that salient with economic stuff, which has economic value, because if the if people are making money doing something in space, they will stay. If people are simply going there because the government is funding it, it's almost by definition unsustainable. So I think that is kind of where I start. And, and so you ask the question, what do we need to focus on? I, I would actually say what we need to do is actually broaden our perspective and understand that it's not just about space. So let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, in space manufacturing, I mean, I think, um, and, and research, um, and this is all about the, the CLD programs. And we're looking at it for the most part, like 
This is a space system. Of course, it's great at space. We've got all kinds of wonderful things that you could do with molecular structures and microgravity. And we keep talking to other space people about this stuff. We need to be thinking about it in terms of what happens on the ground. The people that are going to revolutionize space by producing stuff in space to sell on the earth are going to be people on the earth. You need to talk to the CTO of Merck. You need to talk to the CTO of Intel because they're the people that are spending billions and billions of dollars on research and spending none of it on, on space because they may not know about it. Space is hard. It's expensive. It takes a long time. They've It's got to work for them within the context of how they do their research. So that's that's part of it. Um, another example, if if you will, is telecommunications. And, and so this is in a way kind of the reverse, but we talk about space-based telecommunications if it's a, a, as if it's going to revolutionize everything. And, and the truth is I, I can get 600, I do this for my class, I pull down 600 megabits on my phone, sitting in a, a suburb well away from Denver. Space systems are not going to compete with that. And they have to recognize that we are in the telecommunications business. And so you've got to compete against technologies that will always be superior. And so you just need to understand that and build your business around that. So, you know, my general answer is to make the big things in the economy to have a big effect on the, on the Earth's economy, you've got to think like an Earthling, not a space cadet. I like that. Uh, taking that uh, same uh, path here, let's now ask about uh, law. I know you do touch on this in your course a little bit, and uh, it's what a interesting space that is when you come to start thinking about laws we have here just within states, let alone countries, let alone collections of countries like the European Union, and then, oh boy, uh, cislunar and the moon and beyond. How does law fit into all this? What, how should we be thinking about governance? So um, a friend of mine has a t-shirt. It's one of my C-Space friends, and it says, where explorers go, lawyers follow. And, and it really needs a postscript that says, at a respectable distance. Um, I, think, I think we kind of need to figure out what the problems are that the law needs to solve before we start constraining ourselves with legal regimes. It's kind of like, um, I don't know if it's apocryphal, but somebody told me a story about West Virginia, no, what, no, Virginia Tech. They built all the buildings. They didn't put down sidewalks until they saw where people walked and then they built the sidewalks. I think we kind of need to do some of that. Um, and this is gonna be, the moon is gonna be hairy. It, it is because it we um you know the vast majority like 99.99999 percent of the moon is like the mojave desert and i actually checked up the, you can buy a, a square meter of land in the mojave desert for 35 cents the other pieces the pieces that are on the edge of craters where you've got permanent almost permanent sunlight on one side permanent shade on the other probably a crater full of of, of water ice are going to be like there was a um a parking garage that was sold in hong kong for one million dollars a square meter and, wow. and 
that's the real estate problem we have. And it, it, it only gets worse because of the rocket plumes and stuff. But if somebody plants a habitat on a crater, you probably have a legitimate safety concern about anybody else landing on that crater. And so there's going to be a competition for these precious bits of real estate. Uh, and that um, that's going to be very interesting and probably a little, a little bit troubling. And, yeah. And it, um, that's not going yeah. to get solved by lawyers. It's going to get solved by politicians and businessmen, I'm afraid. I'm not afraid. Yeah, you know, I, I've been engaged with um, one of the big FFRDCs, the federally funded research and development corporations, not RAND, but one of the others, um, that involved some space force thinking. Because mm -hmm. along with law, of course, uh, if you're going to, and economics, if you're going to have a thing somewhere, you need a uh, Coast Guard, if not a traditional military, a Coast Guard to protect your interests out there. And what do you think about the whole notion of something like a Space Force and its role in protecting commerce and ensuring um, a direction in governance? So I, I hope it doesn't come to that. I, I really think that let's just take this problem of lunar real estate. I, yeah. I really think that Sanity will prevail when when the various countries, U.S., China, obviously, India, um, other members of the Artemis Accords, there'll be other countries that independently or part of either uh, the International Lunar Research Station or Artemis are going to be active on the moon. I think we will evolve a sort of a set of rules of the road and and that will kind of govern activities and, and we'll codify that in, in some kind of intergovernmental agreements. I think global treaties are going to be, let's say interplanetary treaties are going to be tough, but I think we'll come to agreements. Then when you start seeing violations of those agreements, um, then and only then, I think, do you start talking about um, military presence? I, I do think it would be, it would be, an open invitation to China. It, it, sending the Space Force to the moon would be an open invitation to China to militarize it. I think we are far better off just winning this battle with commerce because if, if what we're talking about is a competition to occupy more precious chunks of real estate, let U.S. industry do that. We will invest and we will go out there because there is a potential economic return in being in all of these spots. And it will take a little bit of encouragement from the U.S. government to have lots of companies on lots of craters. And that's a place where we have a fundamental, a huge advantage over any other nation is that we are the only nation capable of extending commerce into space right now. And I think that'll be the case for a long time. You think that there are any um, glaring um, misconceptions that people have about humanity's future in space? There's so much going on. It's uh, it's maybe hard to separate near and far term things. Uh, but what do you think? What are the glaring I misconceptions? I, mean, I think they're I think they're glaring misconceptions about human nature, no matter where humans are. 
Mm-hmm. And, and those misconceptions are going to be just the same in space. Space isn't going to be any different. We are going to do good things and bad things in space the same way we do good things and bad things on Earth. It's just, in some ways, a lot more expensive to do those things. So maybe, you know, um, maybe trivial dumb things um, will be less likely to happen. But I don't, I, I really don't think humans become I, I, I mean, there is an overview effect, and I get all of that, but I think fundamentally humanity isn't that different in space. I just don't. Yeah, as I much as I appreciate Frank White, we were just with Frank White, you and I, a couple months ago, and back in December, a month ago or so. Um, I think you're right. Humans will be humans wherever we go. But that brings me to, um, I often talk about uh tool sets, skill sets, and mindsets. And I did at the conference we were at and how important the last part of that is. Certainly we need to think about our tool sets and certainly we need to develop and and embrace the skill sets, but mindset would be the one thing that we could potentially adjust so that we are a little bit less like we have been perhaps as we move into space. And uh, I'm a believer as I know you are in one of the best ways to do that is uh, focus on future generations. Uh, and this brings me to the Aldrin Family Foundation. Um, uh, I'm uh, super privileged to be a member of the Space Education Alliance with Mark Wagner, something that you have been uh, a champion of, uh, and just the Aldrin Family Foundation in general. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on uh, the role of primary and secondary uh, education as we inspire and teach future generations to pursue these careers and opportunities. Um, share with us your thoughts on that because yeah. it is so important and I know it's important to you. It is, it is. And so um, as, as part of just interacting with the rest of the space community and the space education community, it's kind of occurred to me that there are um, there's really there's some directional differences that are um, are useful to, to recognize, and so I say there's um, education for space, and there's space for education. Hmm. And so what does that mean? So I'm going to I'm going to explain yeah. it. Education for space is we need to get more kids excited about space so they participate in space and become the entrepreneurs of the future, and and obviously. Um, I believe in that very much. And what I'm doing in the graduate education is kind of very focused on that piece of it. But it's a it's it's a very, very important thing that we need to do. And NASA is out there doing that. And that's all great. There's space for education, which is kind of where the foundation is focused. Because um, one of the things that my dad believes, and he kind of started the whole thing, is that space gets kids excited. And so, you know... I like to say kids get excited about two things, they dinosaurs in space and, and they get over dinosaurs. They don't get over space. They don't. And so ironically, there's only one person I know who doesn't really care about space and I married her, but at any rate, um, <laughs> but it is a, an incredibly powerful force. And if you can use the excitement of space to get kids excited about learning, whether it's STEM or something else, I almost, I, I don't like getting wrapped up in STEM, STEAM, whatever you want to call it. It's all about curiosity and and wanting to learn. And so if you can use space and do that, I think there's tremendous benefit. So what we do in the foundation is 
we kind of take it a step further that what we really try to do is take all the great things that are happening in space and bring them literally into the classroom by writing curricula that teachers can use to meet standards. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's, it's all about organizations and, and the, the pointy end of the spear in education are, are teachers and principals. And so what we're trying to do is help make them better by giving them, if you will, a little bit of space. Nice. How long has the foundation been uh, in existence now? So, well, I mean, actually, the, the original foundation, the original 501c3 was created back in the 90s. My dad wanted to do, he called it share space. And the idea was he wanted to um, create a lottery that the winners would actually get to fly into space, which is a, an incredibly cool thing. Also, as it turns out, a, a difficult thing. And this is kind of you know, as as the case, as is the case with so many of my dad's ideas, they're just ahead of his time. And sometimes I, you know, I had to tell him, Dad, you know, a great idea at the wrong time is, is still not a great idea because timing really matters. But at any rate, then it evolved into he just wanted to go out there and he wanted to get kids excited about space. And so that's kind of the way it evolved. And that was back in, I want to say probably 2010-ish. And then, you know, what happened is when I retired the first time, went to Florida Tech, I just, I saw this tremendous um, potential. And I said, what we've really got to do is start building real curricula. And so back in, you know, I'd say 13, 14, 15 is kind of when we started getting more more traction with what we we're doing. That's very exciting. Going- we're building satellites in schools. It's very exciting. Yeah. Um, uh, and what a good group of people. We spent some time with them also in December. Uh, talk about a motivated group of people. Um, a bunch of uh, kids who grew up and became teachers and didn't walk away from space. Mm-hmm. Who, like you said, just kept uh, who kept going with it. Um and it's interesting. Uh, you know, I've known your dad for many years also. <laughs> senior dad with his ideas and he's tenacious with his ideas uh, i'm reminded of uh i don't know why i thought this was a good idea but andy weir the author of the martian I, you know i know andy that andy and invited him to have lunch with your dad and right. uh you know remember they just were like your dad was like let me tell you how it is and uh, spent an hour with his notebook that he always carries around with him right. to share those ideas because uh, because Andy Weir was actually using cyclers. My, my dad right. had it all completely screwed up. And and cyclers yeah. an amazing thing, just an, an amazing concept. Um, again, probably a little ahead of his time, but we will be um we will be using cyclers to get to Mars when we get to Mars. Yeah, of course. Well, hey, um it's uh 15 minutes to the end of our session, and we want to open things up uh, for people uh, to ask questions. So, Catherine, I'm going to ask you now to uh, take a look at our chat. And if you haven't had your questions yet, we're going to ask you to type your questions into chat. And Catherine's going to be going through them and moderating questions for us. And she will invite you to ask your question of uh, Andy. So, uh, Catherine, are you there and ready to jump in on this? Absolutely. And our first question comes from uh, Lucky uh, Gunasekara. I hope I'm saying that correctly. 
it was a private message, so I'm gonna paste it in chat. Uh, but Lucky, do you like? Would you like to uh, voice your um, your question, Randy? Hello, Lucky. You might be All on right. mute. Let's give yeah. uh, Lucky a few minutes to uh, okay. to reconnect. And the next question comes from Elias. Um, Elias, are you um, are you here and ready to ask it? Yes. Awesome. Uh, however, I can't remember how I formulated it. Uh, so I asked um, one of these sort of like interesting sort of fields of research that we're seeing at the moment is within neuromorphic engineering to allow for low power applications of well, yeah, low power AI ML applications in space. Do you have any thoughts regarding this? Um. So just so I make sure I've got it clear, applications of AI ML in space. Just generally yes, speaking. but more enabled by neuromorphic engineering. I think it's more the neuromorphic engineering side of it that is interesting. So that's the because... part that I lost on neuromorphic. But what I will say is, with respect to AI generally, I mean, we talk about it, and you know, literally, you can't do baseball cards without having AI on them or something like that. Um, but and so everything in space is somehow AI enabled. But if I look at where it really, really seems an obvious place for me is in the geospatial industry. And so the, the really cool thing that's going on right now in geospatial is um, we have, I've lost count, but I think at last count, 35, 40 companies flying satellites using different kinds of sensor, generating different kinds of data. And, and right now they're all trying to sell, sell it direct to customers, which I think is, is probably not going to be a sustainable business model. But you've got all of these different data streams. And, and then ultimately, you know, you've got people who have real world problems and they have no idea what all of these data streams can do to solve them their problems. But I think there will be a reorganization of, of geospatial to where you may have th different tiers, but a key tier of that is gonna be, how do you combine all of these different data streams to solve very specific problems? And, and, the, and the person with the problem doesn't care whether the answer came from, from space, from drones, from carrier pigeons, they don't care. They just want the information. And so I think that that AI probably enables that because it's one of the few places in space that you really generate the kind of data sets that you need, right? And so I know that it's happening, but it's happening mostly on a um, individual, if you will, company basis. And any one of these companies with the exception of someone who is selling directly into, into the Intel community probably doesn't have sufficient data to really create the kind of training sets but it's when you start to pull these things together and whether that deals with the sort of, uh, I, I, I won't even try and repeat the specific piece of that technology. That's where I would look for a place where you would have tremendous leverage to do things that we don't even, we don't have a clue of right now. And we're certainly hoping that uh, the field of neomorphic computing, which is really just the, I shouldn't say just that, it's fairly uh, coming into its own, uh, field now where the um, methods of doing the uh, processing uh, are based on modeled after the systems of the human brain and the human nervous system. So uh, lots to be learned on where we go with neuromorphic computing, but certainly we are starting to see the uh, ML in space 
things happening now. And I, I expect we're going to see that grow. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. Um, Catherine, who's next? So uh, Lucky is back and has a question about the emergence of LLMs. So Lucky, would you like to ask it? Yeah. Hi, Eddie. Um, I'm Hello. curious what, what your take is on the sort of like, it's been a kind of crazy year for foundation models and large language models in particular. What, what's your assessment of this in terms of what should the people building these models actually be directing their energy towards in terms of solving gap problems in space exploration? Is it towards having onboard computers that could be information resources or, or co-pilots for teams, other use cases? I'm, I'm, I'm curious where, where your mind has gone to as you've been observing this. Yeah, so my, my position would be point your gun in the other direction, be looking at customers not at space systems necessarily. What what is it? How do you can how do you understand what it is that they really need and, and then turn in that turn that into something that can be used for space from that can pull data from space? I mean this is um I think I know a lot about space. I do not know a lot about AI ML. And so I think probably the way I answered the last question is about stretch my envelope as far as we can stretch it without making stuff up. And um, I try not to do that. Of course, this just also makes me think how fun it would be to have Buzz GPT. What a fun, uh, <laughs> that could be real fun. I'm sure the data is out there for all the places Buzz has spoken and things he's written. Uh, thank you for your question. Uh, Catherine, who else do we have? Uh, we have actually a few questions. Um, I'm going to ask Martina to bring her up. I think uh, it encases a lot of them. It's always a pleasure to listen to Dr. Aldrin Chalk. He's an encyclopedia of knowledge, and it's so exciting. So I did learn a lot about how to compare my small Balkan region to um, similar countries instead of the space-leading varying countries. So my question is, how do we further enable key cooperation with newcomers that are emerging right now uh, and kind of like bring them in cooperation, even if they're smaller in size, with the key players? What's your take on that? So. It hasn't changed all that much from when you were at Florida Tech, um, because I think, so the first thing that, that we all need to understand is the number of countries in space has more than doubled in the last five years, it's countries with real space programs. The question that countries that are coming into space have to ask themselves is, where's their niche and how can they produce either economic return or social good out of space? And, and the obvious answer to me is you can create an awful lot of social good by using space for the things that we talk about in education, that getting the, the younger generation of a country involved in CubeSats, which you can do for an, an incredibly small amounts of money, certainly compared to what it used to cost. And so that, was, that would be the first place that I would look for in a developing country. The second thing I would look at is um, where do you fit in on the ground? Because space is, I mean, all the money is made in space on the ground, right? Nobody is yet, I mean, they may well be. In fact, I really, it's a completely different subject. Nobody is selling stuff from space to other people in space, which they will. And, and that will be a nice business, but nothing like actually if you can figure out how to 
sell stuff on earth. And so looking for niches based on taking things from space and geospatial is obviously a good place to start and finding applications for your country on the ground and building your space capabilities from the ground up is where I would start. I would avoid, uh, and I, I won't point out the developing country that has been developing a space program for the last 50 years without a whole lot of success. And they have tremendous technical resources, tremendous geographical resources, probably the economic resources to do it, but they keep trying to do everything. And if you focus on something and do it well, you'll be much more successful than trying to do everything. And I don't, the big mistake a country coming in is trying to don't, 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 don't build launch vehicles. Don't. Um, I would stay away from even building launch sites because um, launch vehicles are funny things. America does not like their launch vehicles going to other countries to be launched. And so, you know, my one piece of advice would be stay out of the launch business. It's actually a lousy business. I mean, just in terms of making money, it's a lousy business, but um yeah. There's a reason UAL is a, or excuse me, ULA is a, looking to sell <laughs> there. You know, I'm encouraged by what you say there and by what Mexico is doing. I don't know if you saw the press release yesterday yeah. from Marina Aerospace, right? Building a Super new excited. national rocket and space science center that's not a launch facility, but educational and technology development and all those things. Right. And I mean, what what they need to be doing is you know, developing a, an agenda, and maybe this is where it happens, an agenda for the developing world, which it, which has to do with, I mean, it's got to start with geospatial. I mean, and combining geospatial, PNT, and communications, those three things coming together, you'll just, amazing things are happening. I mean, obviously, there's a big deal with John Deere coming out and having Starlink antennas on it, but that's great. So they've got a cell phone on top of their tractor. Um, and so, I mean, that's, cool but when you start combining that with the kind of geospatial information that we've talked about with the incredible accuracy you can get with um with gps or galileo with augmentation you know that there's just so much that can revolutionize the developing world and helping it to develop you know so i'm excited about the Merida center yeah nice uh, we have time catherine for one more question um, all right, next up in the line comes from Alder. Great question. Um, Alder, are you here? I'm not surprised Alder has a great question. I've known Alder a long time. <laughs> Hi, uh, Alder. Hey, Jonathan. Nice to, nice to meet you, Andy. Um, so you raised this great point about the education point and how kids, they start off with dinosaurs in space, and then they kind of you know lose off the dinosaurs. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how do we keep more people interested in space for the long term, feeling like they actually have a stake in it, you know, even into adulthood. Yeah, well, so I mean, the the easy thing is um, convincing them that there's real social good coming out of it, and so building programs that do stuff on Earth um, is great. Um, I think the other thing is um, enlarging the space economy on the ground creating more jobs on the ground. I mean, we talk about the trillion dollar space economy. And uh, so probably of the trillion dollars, let's call it 700 billion is stuff on the ground, right? It's applications. And we tend to focus on the hardware. So I think a big part of it is convincing everyone, well, just getting, not convincing, 
just getting people involved in what comes out of space. Um, and and actually being successful with some of the space exploration missions would probably help. But, but I'm a big fan of, you know, as I, I told you at, at the beginning of this, that there's this artificial salient that we really need to fill in with real acti economic activity in space. And so in some ways, what I want is for space to become more of the normal economy um, than something which is exceptional. You know, space, let's space become a place where you can, you know, you can really, you can afford to do suborbital tourism. I, I mean, I kind of, in my own little calculation figured the most anyone spends on a big vacation is 1% of their net worth. That's a good number. And if you get down to numbers of normal people, you know, you've got to be looking at $30,000 flights or whatever. Right. And so we've got to get to that place, but that's only going to happen with suborbital. I don't believe, I don't believe in the magic of um, $10 a kilogram into space or $10, $20 a kilogram to Mars. I can't send a package across the city for 10 bucks a kilogram. Right. <laughs> nice. Okay. Well, Andy, thank you. Alder, thank you for that uh, final question for us here. Andy, this has just been great as always. Good to yeah. spend time with you. Um, hoping to see Maureen there in the background, but she didn't. Uh, she didn't show her face. She usually, she usually, <laughs> she usually hides out of embarrassment when I do these kinds. Of <laughs> I give her a big hug for me, okay, and uh, and a big thank you for you for spending time with us today. For those of you who've joined, we hope you've enjoyed this today. Uh, please feel free to share your feedback in chat. We take it seriously. If you like this kind of content and want us to do more of this. Um, that's our plan, uh, but we want to make sure we're fine-tuning and doing uh, doing the things that let are me meaningful actually, for you. Yeah. Let me send something out. You guys are all welcome to contact me by email. Fabulous. You're going to put that in chat? Yes. Okay. Andy is putting his email in chat. If you want to reach out and connect directly with Andy, go ahead and do that. Speaking of connecting, uh, I would invite each of you to connect with and follow uh, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can reach me that way. Uh, please follow Trillium and please follow both FDL and uh, Frontier Development Lab and FDL Europe on LinkedIn. It's a great way to be kept up to date uh, on things. Uh, go to trillium.tech and you can sign up for newsletters, intelligence age, uh, content, all kinds of good stuff there for you. Uh, Coming up next time in our part two of the series on space as an economic destination, the business of space, we'll spend time with another good friend. Uh, and it's fun for me to be able to spend time with good friends doing these kinds of things like Andy. Next week, it's Steve Jurvetson. Steve is wow. the, the <laughs> VC founder wow. of Future Ventures. Um, he's also on the board of directors of SpaceX. He's one of the three board members at SpaceX. He also has the biggest, largest, I should say, private collection of space artifacts, including your dad's flashlight from his Gemini spacewalk. Yeah, yeah it's a, uh, uh, yeah, I was just a couple weeks ago out at a, uh, at Steve's office. And it's uh, hilarious to me how much more he keeps finding ways to cram in there. 
uh, in a good way. He's got a console from the Apollo missions from Mission Control in there in his office. And the largest piece of the moon on the earth is sitting on Steve's desk at his office as well. So come and uh, and hear from Steve, who has been uh, a space junkie for many, many years himself and doing very meaningful work. The week after that, also very exciting. Part three, we're going to meet with uh, uh, Erica Wagner, uh, another friend for many years. She is the Senior Director for Emerging Market Development at Blue Origin. Uh, she's just incredibly accomplished in the space field and full of so much insight. You are not going to want to spend uh, time with her or with Steve uh, in these wormhole sessions. Um, we'd also like to remind, since we know we have a lot of our researchers here, please share this information with your friends. I'm sure you had a great experience as a postdoc in the FDL-X and FDL-Europe programs uh, in the past. Uh, we're opening, we have open applications for FDLX and FDL Europe for 2024 summer programs. Learn more about that at fdleurope.org uh, and fdl.ai. And consider joining an information session that we'll be hosting on January 25th uh, and February 1st to hear from some of the FDL alumni, get answers to any questions you may have about that. So with that, we'll say thank you all for joining. We look forward to seeing you next week, next Wednesday, uh, 0900 Pacific time, the following Wednesday with Erica on the 31st of January at 0800 Pacific time. Uh, thanks. We'll see you all soon. We appreciate you. Please do provide your feedback about the session. And thank you, Andy, so much, my friend. Thank, thank you, you so much, Jonathan. And thank you all for tuning in. Bye, everyone.